Today's episode is brought to you by Airtable. Airtable is a flexible, powerful, all-in-one collaboration tool. The content industry is constantly evolving, so is your edit calendar. That's why leading creative teams like those at BuzzFeed Motion Pictures, Condé Nast Entertainment, and Group 9 Media trust Airtable to manage their most important work. You can get $50 in credits today by signing up at Airtable.com slash Recode. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. I am part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm here in New York City today with two guests. Normally we just have one, but this is a special podcast. Scott Frank, who's been on this podcast before. Steven Soderbergh, who has not. Welcome both of you guys. Thanks. Hey, Peter. You have both made some of my favorite things separately and together. You guys are working on a new, have a new project out, Godless, on Netflix. I keep seeing it described as a feminist western. Mm. I think it means it's, there's women in it who have speaking parts. Yeah, it's a low bar right now. <laughs> um, so, Scott, you wrote and directed this. Stephen, your executive producer. Um, Scott, give me the, give this slightly longer description of what the show is. Well, the show um, t- takes place in 1884 New Mexico, and um, it's essentially it's in about many people, but, but a key part of it is about a town full of women, La Belle, New Mexico, that lost all of their men in a mining accident one afternoon. And into that town and the environs rides a young outlaw who's been wounded, who gets taken care of by a, a woman rancher outside of town who's kind of an outcast. And looking for him, tearing up the countryside, is uh, the man who raised him, Frank Griffin, um, laying waste to basically any community he comes to. And you know it's only a matter of time before he shows up. That's so in many ways, a traditional Western, right? It's yeah. a Western Western. What makes it, again... There's a lot of speaking roles for women. There's the women play an important part in it, but it's not. Do you think you're deconstructing the Western, or is this sort of a straight-ahead? I'm trying to figure out the best way to get people to watch this thing because it's great. They should watch I it. I don't think you have to get people to watch it. They seem to be watching yeah. it based on what I've heard, <laughs> yeah, which well, is the good news. Certainly, everywhere I go, uh, I've been traveling a lot in the last couple of weeks all over the country. Yeah, and. Everybody makes a point of coming up to me and saying they've seen it. And that's, like, that's Steven speaking, by the way. You guys will figure this out, I think, when you, yeah, when you so. listen. Um, famously, Netflix doesn't give you any data about how any of that has performed. I think people like Nielsen are trying to sort of do some guesstimating. Are you guys looking at Nielsen numbers, anyone's numbers? I listen to Netflix and they say, we're happy. Yeah. We're really happy. That's To me, I that heard, means I, have, I even heard very happy. Very happy. So that... That, that's all I need to Is that know. frustrating or is that liberating to sort of not have data attached to something you've put out in the world? Well, it's your show. What do you think? I think it's liberating. I think that, that they're not trying to, that their metrics for, for what defines success are different and I think a little more elastic. And, and the proof is in what they're making. They're making a lot of different things right now. They used to say, because people would ask them, people like me would ask them on earnings calls, well, yeah, how is this stuff working? Maybe, it's, maybe no one's watching. They say, well, if we're renewing it, then you can tell we, we like it. Um, this is a one-off though, right? This yeah. is, I haven't finished. I'm halfway through episode okay. five. This is a hard show to binge watch. I mean, you could binge watch it, but it's, each episode is an hour plus, I think, very often. Yeah. It's deliberately paced. You wouldn't want to just pile it. I guess you could, right? You could. You'd probably miss a lot if you did that. Yeah, you kind of want to take your time with it. Um, so this is a one-off. Do you think you'll do a project with them again? We had a great experience with them. I mean, this the, the sort of origin story of this project is fairly uh, elaborate. And it, 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 okay. 
Well, I mean, Scott wrote the script in 1884, actually, almost quite a while ago, early 2000s, and uh, it was a film. It was a long film, 180 something pages, um, and. For a long time, it was envisioned as a feature, and then not too long ago, when Scott was finishing a film and had directed a pilot, um, we were talking and, and felt it's time to try and wrestle this thing to the ground. And I said, look, instead of having these conversations where people say, can you cut 35 or 40 pages out of it? Why don't we blow it up and go do it as a limited series? Because... Streaming and these these limited series were already a thing at this point. Yeah, the options existed that didn't really exist when we were talking about it as a movie. And we went into Netflix and basically they read the long feature film script. We gave them a budget number and a start date that we pulled out of a dark place. Yes. And, uh, and they said, let's go. And that was it. And so... <laughs> And not only that, the genre was no longer an obstacle in the last 10 years, um, whereas with movies, a Western was a tricky proposition always because in the last 20, 30 years, no one was going to Westerns. They don't travel, as they like to say. They don't do well overseas. So this was an, always going to be an expensive proposition. So, so even though this is a staple of movie making in the olden days, not any favor. People don't watch them. And so they do on television, though, you know, those Tom Selleck Westerns yeah. and, and uh, uh, the... Lonesome Dove did well, but even more recently, the Hatfields and McCoys was like a huge, huge rating bonanza. But for movies, they were they were always a tricky proposition. So it, it, it just freed me up to not worry about the economics of it so much in terms of of you know being able to do something that you where you don't care about the genre. So what what is that process like? So you're taking a a, a feature film; it's a one off. Uh, you're going to expand it into a seven seven part series, but it's again, it's still one story, um, right? Usually, the discipline is condensed things, both for economic reasons, but also just as a storyteller, right? You want to sort of strip it down to the story. So now, as you're adding, how do you think about? Well, let's not bloat here, but like, I mean, there's cool stuff in the show where you can see you are in you are taking advantage of the opportunity you have there, right? There's like extended scenes of like a boy learning to ride a horse, mm-hmm. and Nothing really happens. He learns how to ride a horse. I mean, it's important to the story, but I could see that stuff would get stripped out. So as I'm just rambling on here, um, how do you guys, how do you discipline yourself in terms of let's add that, but maybe let's not overindulge ourselves? Well, this is, this is what I would call the writer's cut. Um, you, you are able to do the kind of reverse adaptation where you're, you're able to go deeper with everybody. And, and what I did is it still has the same beginning, middle, and end that it always did as a feature script. But now each I'm able to tell more stories about each character. I'm able to go deeper, spend more time with people so you actually care about them a little more, create new relationships. And also I, you know, I'm able to create other characters sort of outside of town that we can, we can explore as well. Everybody gets their own movie. Yeah. That's the fun part. Because one cliche you often hear now, right, is that a couple. One is that you know, movies are now the TV is, is the new movie. All the stuff that used to be a movie, we talked about this last time, Scott, is, is now being turned into a TV show. And that also, you know, something like Game of Thrones is, isn't a TV show. It's a 60-part movie, a 60-episode movie, 70-episode movie. Um, but again, Game of Thrones is supposed to sort of go on for a long time. I used to like to go on forever. But this, this is finite, right? It still has the same end. Right. So the challenge is... Let's not add too many characters. Yeah, and, and you do. You, you, it's, a, it's a bit of trial and error, especially because we were expanding it rather quickly. I mean, I wrote 
the extra material, some of which I had had in my head for the existing script years ago, but a lot of which was written in about four months. And if you figure the first script was a year of, say, research, a year of writing, and this was four months to expand it into the full. While we were prepping. While we were prepping. So you kind of, you're, you're not sure about certain things. It all read fine, but then when we got into the cutting room, and um, Stephen was a big help in this regard, there was a lot of material that once you see it alive on screen, you didn't need. And you didn't know until you shot it. Um, and there was a lot of things that, that was too much where, you know, we, we went too far. Stephen, I was reading interviews where you talk about the fact that you shoot digital, and one of the things you love about that is you're, shoot, you're editing stuff sort of the day you shoot it, and you're not waiting to turn it around. This was the opposite. You shot the whole thing, then went to the editing, more traditional. Yeah. Did you, were you, were you did that take, did you find that? Well, I mean, look, Michelle was putting things together as you went. They weren't flying blind. Right. Yeah. But, um, and, and the scale of this really, I think, wouldn't have suited a come back to the hotel room and spend another three or four hours working after being outdoors for 14 hours um, for 114 days. So and you stay away from the set, right? I did in like this horses. Case. Yeah. It's a horse thing? Yeah. It's a real thing? Total it's horse not, thing. It's not a made-up story. <laughs> nope. Do not like being around horses. No. You can tolerate seeing them on screen. Yeah, they're beautiful. They're very photogenic. Uh, I just don't want to be anywhere near them. I told Scott, I'm not coming. There's a lot of horse in this. <laughs> There's yeah. a lot of horse. Well, you know, I wrote it for him to direct originally, and I never thought to ask him, A, if he wanted to write a, uh, direct a Western at all, and B, if how he felt about horses. I just thought, I'm going to write this. He's going to love this. You know, um, we had such a good time on Out of Sight. This will be our next thing. Uh, no, didn't work out that way. <laughs> this, uh, <laughs> Thank God. I watched the first two episodes on my TV, decent-sized TV. It's yep. beautiful. That last shot in the first episode, the, the bad guys are crossing the river and it's slow motion and the spray is coming up. And then I have to watch the next three on my phone. It's a new, nice oh. phone. <laughs> <laughs> it, Peter. It's great. Yeah. It's not what I want to do. What kind of phone? It's the new iPhone. Oh, I'm sure it looks great. It looks yeah. great. I'm sitting there on the plane last night, shoving in front of my face. Um, but you're okay, right? You'd rather that I watch it on TV, but you're okay with the notion that I'm going to watch it on a plane as well. I, I, listen, I can only speak for myself. I'd rather watch it on TV. However people come to it, if they enjoy it on their phone, they enjoy it on their phone. I have to be kind of, you know, open to whatever's happening with technology now. I sat on the train the other day and someone was watching a movie on their phone and I, I, I don't understand that. I don't know how people can do that. Um, but I also know why people are doing it. I know it's it's great. You can you can watch anywhere. But I think I don't think I shot it necessarily for people to watch on their phone. So you don't I, think about that when you're shooting it. You don't think what would this look like on a handheld? I device? would do a particularly big scopey shot, and then I would always make a joke. That's going to look great on your iPhone. <laughs> it does look great on your iPhone. It turns out if you have a good iPhone, I guess. I'm, I'm really happy to hear that. Stephen, it seems like you're more amenable to that stuff. Yeah, to me, at the end of the day, it's story is story. So I'm I'm not I'm pretty agnostic about the venue, um, and certainly when we did Mosaic, which is an app, and was I was very aware that this was going to be primarily seen on phones, maybe iPads, possibly Apple TV, but um, I didn't do anything differently. And in fact, I think I was reading one of the interviews. You said, I expect that you're going to be touching different stuff while you're looking at this. I assume you're. Let's talk about what Mosaic is. Um, we can come back to, to Godless in a minute. But Mosaic is, is I'm not going to trigger you by calling it a choose your own adventure. Good. 
don't, a, don't, the tactical don't make me come over there. Is branching narrative? <laughs> branching narrative, I like. Let's explain that. Well, the difference is that, that your choices as you navigate your way through Mosaic do not affect the story. It's a murder mystery. It's a fixed, in, it's a fixed universe. Right. So it's a, it's a narrative. There's a murder. Yeah. No matter how you consume it, the same thing happens. At the, at the yes, end. although depending on whose path you choose, your interpretation of who was responsible could be very different. So, so and it's, this is a actual thing you made. It's like seven, how long is uh, how much content did you make for this? If you watched everything, it's about seven and a half hours. So it's as long as Godless. Mm-hmm. If you wanted to consume the whole thing, yeah. Sharon Stone's the star. Yeah. Um, you can eventually see a version of this on HBO. Yeah, there'll be a linear six-hour version in uh, end of January. What, so why did you want to make a branching narrative? Well, you know, I've always been interested in how to lay a story out. Um, form, I think, is a fascinating subject to to play around with. And as someone who's experimented in the nonlinear space a little bit. This seemed like a natural progression for me. And so... Because um, a lot of your movies have moved around in time, right? Yeah, and this was a way to kind of have it both ways, to, to sometimes be on a linear track, but in a macro sort of philosophical sense to be in a nonlinear space. Um, so, again, as was Godless for the writer, in this case, Ed Solomon, a very, very intense process. And and do you think, so this is an experiment for you, or do you think we're going to do a lot of these and this is something... We have two more that we're developing, and I'm I'm sort of, I want to go back and do another one, but I want, I want to wait and see what other people do with it. So the idea is you built this app, and so it's a, I'm assuming, I'm guessing here, that it's a platform so other people can, so you can tell different stories using the same technology now that you built Yeah, up. I mean, you can't copyright, you can't copyright branching narrative right. as a concept, but I think a lot of the technology that we created specifically for Mosaic is, is you know, uh, copyrightable, protectable, and, and I think good. You know, what I'm hoping to do is attract some talent to work with us and take it further and, and create their own versions of this. I view it as a very open source uh, project, but you financed so Mosaic is the app that you finance yourself, and the and the murder mystery is is the first sort of story you're telling through. Yeah, I mean HBO paid for for the whole thing. Was that always the plan, or yeah. so yeah. they paid for the app? And yeah, how do you like being an app developer? It's a tough world. It is a tough world, uh, but interesting. I think uh, I think in this case the the trick is going to be, you know, continuing to develop the the format so that it it's it doesn't feel sort of static creatively and then um down the road what's what's the what's the future of it like how many how do you how do you turn it into something that becomes a business it's 2017 nearly 2018 it's interesting that there aren't that many more experiments with sort of the, the shape and delivery of, of the stuff that you guys are making, right? Um, they're streaming, and that's a big deal, but generally these are TV shows. In this case of Godless, it's a one-off. There's movies, but there's, you know, they're two-hour-long movies. They're hour-long TV shows. You're not seeing a lot of sort of, like, 
short form stuff or odd lengths. You are though, if yeah. you think about it. Yeah. And you're thinking primarily about hardware and delivery, but look at podcasts, look at what's happening in the documentary world. There's so many different kinds of stories being told right now. The interesting thing about Mosaic for me as a storyteller is that it allows you to not have a gimmick, but to go deeper in places you want to go deeper, not have it for people if they want to have it. I, you know, people, when they come to you and talk about their, your story, often you'll hear, I really wanted more of this character, that character, or um, I, I, too much of that. Mm-hmm. Too much for, and so you can kind of control that experience in a way that doesn't feel like you're in an amusement park. It feels like you're really, it's a, it's a three-dimensional novel almost. You feel like you're a part of it in a way and experiencing it in a way that's different. Um, all kinds of stories. You look at true crime right now is exploding, and there, I don't know how many podcasts about that. Um, and the documentary world has become, I think, for fi- feature film, the best filmmaking and storytelling is happening in documentaries, not in the world of movies, which is all superheroes all the time. Yeah, which you, you've done well with superheroes. Yeah, right? what are you complaining about? <laughs> it's, you know. <laughs> but it's, it's The last time you were here, we, were, we talked about, not uh, to, uh, about Logan. I yeah, to. and not to bite the hand at all. It is what it is, but I also would like to do other things, you know. I, um, it's not what I, and it's not what I want to see all the time. But if you go for good storytelling, you're not always going to the theater anymore. Still t- storytelling. I think there was a, a period, I, you'll still hear people talking about, especially with VR, like, oh, we want an open world and the, the, the whoever, it's going to be interactive and you're going to create the story yourself moving around. That doesn't seem like that interests you guys. You want to still tell a story. I don't know that that's storytelling so much as an ex- a kind of experiential kind of thing. Yeah, I think in terms of long form, it's got serious obstacles. Like? Um, you can't do a reverse. You can't look into the eyes of the protagonist. That's a problem. Uh, currently, I can't do a montage, which is a problem. Editing in general is kind of not really on the table in the way that, that is central to, to creating, I think, a visual story. It is, it is an incredibly arresting, immersive technology. I don't like having that thing on my head for more than 10 or 15 yeah, minutes. Yeah, some people get ill. Right? I, can't, I can't experience it with someone else really in the sense that, you know, even when you're at home, if I'm watching something with my wife and something happens on screen, you get to look at each other and go, uh-oh. <laughs> like, that's a big part of watching stuff. Right. So I think there's, there's a space for it. I just don't see it as a long-form narrative play. So we're going to break up this long-form interview with a quick word from a sponsor. We'll be right back with Scott Frank, Steven Soderbergh. Today's show is sponsored by Mac Weldon. They make the most comfortable hoodies, sweatpants, underwear, and socks you'll ever wear. If my interview with Steven Soderbergh and Scott Frank sounds like I'm feeling extra comfortable, it's because I'm wearing Mac Weldon socks. It's true. They're made of naturally antimicrobial fiber that eliminate odors, so you smell good, too. You can wear them to work. You can wear them to a podcast. They're easy to buy. Go to MacWeldon.com. Get 20% off your order with the promo code RECODE. That's MacWeldon.com, promo code RECODE. For some reason you don't like this stuff, hang on to it. Mac Weldon will send you your money back. MacWeldon.com, promo code RECODE. Today's show is also brought to you by Simple Human. These guys make innovative products that improve your everyday life. You probably have seen them in someone's house already. They make awesome trash cans. It seems like trash cans is not something you should spend a lot of time thinking about, but here's the deal. You get a good trash can and you know it. They're worth it. The new Simple Human trash can is awesome. It is a touch-free motion sensor can. You can also control with your voice. 
I have one in my kitchen as I speak to you right now. If you've got a ton of mess that you need to throw away fast or you need to toss that paper towel in from far away, Simple Human can help. Just yell at it. Open the can. It opens. The can is tested to last more than 150,000 cycles. That's 20 times a day for 20 years. You can use your own trash bags or you can use custom fit liners from Simple Human. However you want to line your trash can, it will work great. You will not realize how much you'll enjoy using a touch-free motion sensor trash can until you have one in your kitchen. Trust me. Visit simplehuman.com to purchase your sensor can with voice. Use the promo code MEDIA at checkout. You'll get 15% off that trash can. Again, the promo code is MEDIA at simplehuman.com. You can step into the trash can of the future. We're back. We're drinking water with mm-hmm. Scott Frank, Steven Soderbergh. Um, we talked about Godless. Uh, I'm going to go back to that for a second because it's Netflix. Um, the Netflix pitch for when they started getting into making their own content, there was a lot of talk about how they had this data and they were going to use that to inform choices about what they made. Um, you guys were describing a process where you came to them and said, we want to make a Western. And they said, great. And you said, let's, and you did it. Um, how much input did, did they have either before you made it or, or as they were making it in terms of what you might want to do with that project? Well, first of all, they actually reached out to us and said, we're looking for a Western. I heard you wrote one. <laughs> and that's kind of the way the way it happened. They knew they wanted a Western. They knew they wanted a Western. They were looking for, for different kinds of material, and that was something that they hadn't yet done. And they also wanted to experiment in the limited series. They had bought, acquired limited series before, but they had never done any in-house. So this was uh, actually their first official in-house production. They... Um, they responded to the feature script. Their, their input went like this. They responded to the feature script. They said, we want to do this. We want to make it our first official miniseries. We'd like to shoot it next year. Um, come in and talk about it. I went in and spoke to them about what I might do to expand the script, how I thought I would be shooting it, and so on and so forth. And they said, great, let's do it. Um, we invited them to every, I believe in hiding nothing from anyone, so they were a part of every piece of you know prep. They went on early scouts. I mean, everybody from the company. I had all kinds of people from business affairs and post-production. All of them wanted to come and be a part of the production. And they were all there, and they always knew how we were shooting, um, what we were shooting, how we were spending the money. Uh, I even told them that it would be hard to lock down a budget before I had all the scripts written because I didn't want to be penalized for something I didn't know. But you can't, I couldn't budget it until it was all written, and I didn't want to back into something I couldn't deliver. And they said, okay, we won't hold you to anything until the scripts are all written. And I said, we may not know the final budget until the first day of shooting. And they said, okay. <laughs> and what's the catch? No catch. <laughs> Hasn't been one so far. I mean, even the editorial process, which on this was very complicated because when you start to make structural changes, unlike a movie, it's one thing to sit through a two-hour movie a half dozen times. When you start making structural changes in a, in a piece like Godless, you kind of have to watch the whole thing again to get a sense of whether it worked. That's hard. It's hard to, to watch it beginning to end over and over and over again. But if you don't, you can't judge if these big structural moves that you're making are working. So it was tricky. That was the trickiest part, I thought. It was really hard. And they were in it the whole time. And they, they would never say, you have to do this or have to do that. They would say, this is how we're experiencing the show. Here's our input. These are thoughts we have. These are things you might want to do. 
um, but do do what feels and right. Did to they you. ever say, "Look, we have all this data that we've amassed over X number of years of streaming, so we're not telling you to do this, but we are saying, but we have noticed that our audience seems to like X more than Y, this kind of casting more than that kind of casting." Not the only the only thing that they broached that with, and even then, it was not. It, it, it wasn't with any real, you know, careful. It was just, we just want you to know people tend to skip title sequences. Uh-huh. And I wanted a title sequence. And I said, well, we'll just have to do one they don't want to skip. But they they said people tend, we find that people, because it was when I was talking about wanting to do something for the beginning. Uh-huh. It was that. Um, and they tra- do have that button. Yeah. They do have the button. Yeah. Skip, yeah. skip intro. Yeah. But they, in terms of casting, they said we want the best possible actor. If anything, it would be like a traditional studio. They said, listen, if somebody can go get on a couch somewhere with somebody like Colbert or, or Seth Meyers uh-huh. or whoever, that would be terrific. But ideally, you want to cast people who work for the role. And they they never they never wavered from that. And where the, where the metrics come in, their um, algorithms and so on, is in marketing. It's a whole new way of marketing. And, and Stephen could probably speak to this as well, but they, they, a traditional studio is going for a date. They're going for Friday, that weekend, everything, all the money is spent for that date. Whereas Netflix, once it's out there, it's out there forever. Right, there's still a push, right? It's coming out before Thanksgiving. But, there's but billboards. Not, but not, the bulk of the marketing budget isn't dumped before. What they do is they, they put out billboards and they create trailers, some of which I think is just to make the filmmakers happy because I don't think they need it. I think 60 or 70 percent of the people that come to the website, they told me, don't know or the site don't know what they're going to watch until they get there. So that means the little thumbnail images they're looking at are hugely important to what they're going to watch. Again, is that sort of unsettling to you to sort of not know how this is being received, not knowing if people are even – because it's possible, right, that there are Netflix subscribers who – won't know this exists because they won't show it to them. It's not unsettling. It's just new. And I think that um, they they take the data and they don't – what studios do is they begin to create content based on marketing so all their content looks the same. I think you and I talked about this. It becomes a snake that eats its own tail. They're just making the same shit over and over again because their testing has told them what people want to see. And so it's all marketing driven. You also said they're very good at it. They, they're very good at it. And frequently, sadly, they can be right. Um, um, what, what, the, what Netflix does is they use all this marketing. They want to study how people are actually coming to the thing. What were they watching before? What other shows do they also watch? And so they watch it. They release it. They put it out there. They definitely target certain people they think might be interested in it. But then they sit back and watch. And then you see a second push. I noticed this on Mindhunter. Tons of advertising spent. Three weeks after it had been out, I'm seeing lots and lots of ads. And same with Netflix. They're, they're pushing godless. I see it at a football game. You see – because now they know who's watching. Now they have a better sense. And, it, and it's, it's, actually, it's actually better rather because it's – they're not telling you how to make it. They're taking what you've made and figuring out how to sell it. Stephen, this is something that you spend a lot of time thinking about for traditional films now, right? You, just, we, you did Logan Lucky earlier this summer. We were talking about this before. This is a film you basically financed yourself, right? Well, way, well, you didn't pay out of pocket, but you, you yeah. assembled this together on, with, with a team. Yeah, it was rights. an independent production. Yeah. And, and the idea was you were going to pre-sell all the rights to people like Netflix to cover the costs. And then you were very interested in sort of how the marketing money was going to be spent. You were hands-on for that. Yeah, it was an opportunity to experiment a little bit with how um, uh, a feature film going out in wide release 
um, is handled, both creatively and financially. Um, and we learned a lot. And it's a model I want to continue to use and continue to recalibrate. Um, what did you learn? Because from the outside, well, it what I like learned a in this case, movie. what I learned, and, it, and, it, and again, it's tricky. This is where you know I, I have real sympathy for anybody who's in the wide release distribution business. You have to be very careful to not make sort of whole scale assumptions that may only be applicable to the kind of film that you just made. For instance, here's what we learned on Logan Lucky. We spent, at my request, a, a hugely disproportionate amount of money in social media in the digital space, as opposed to television. In retrospect, I think that was a mistake. Yeah. I think the audience, the potential audience for Logan Lucky doesn't really hang out in that space and probably would have been better reached through a certain kind of television because I think that audience also believes if they don't see a lot of TV ads for the movie, the movie's not real. This is a heist movie, intersects with, with NASCAR. Yeah, but, you know, it's, yeah, it's got movie stars in it. But, I mean, it's just, I think for the crowd we were chasing, um, if they don't see a lot of ads on TV, they just don't feel like it's a real movie. They feel like it's kind of like JV. Uh-huh. Again, that's something I felt in retrospect. What I did learn, and again, in the case of that film, was that people in the social media digital space find that activity circulating in that world, liking stuff, pushing it around, watching it to be a pleasurable activity in and of itself. It is a discrete form of entertainment for them that does not necessarily lead to buying a ticket to a movie. Let's look at the trailer, let's discuss the trailer, let's share the no, trailer. No, the number of eyeballs that we got on all the content we dropped was ridiculously high. We were successful in that regard. What we learned was people just like doing that to do it. Because if, you know, 1% of those people had bought tickets, we'd have made an obscene amount of money. So that was a good lesson to learn. So going forward, what I have to be careful about doing is going like, oh, screw digital, we're going all TV. That might work for a certain kind of film, but it might not. You have to, I think you just have to be really clear about where is your audience that is going to buy a ticket hanging out. I was reading an interview with you, and I think it was before the movie had come out, but you were talking about it, and you were saying, yeah, my, traditional marketing's stupid, and we should compress all the time between when a trailer comes out, when the movie comes out, because it's dumb to have a trailer come out four months in advance. Um, that you, I still believe. You still believe that. On, on the film that we have coming out in March, we've, we've tightened that window significantly. And that's, that's a horror movie? Yeah. Sort of. Psychological thriller. It's called? Unsane. So I won't see a trailer for it until? Uh, end of January. It comes out in March. And, and normally that would be, I'd see one now? Yep. Yeah. And that's, that's your call? Yep. Interesting. And then the other part of this, uh, of Logan Lucky, that was interesting was that you were saying, in addition to the, how we're financing it, how we're marketing it, we're going to provide real transparency to everyone who's participating in this about how much money they are, are, are going to make or are not going to make. How did that part work? It's working. Yeah. You know, we're, we're, still, we're still in the middle of it. We're still collecting from theaters. You know, we're still the, the, um, the Amazon deal that we made for all the ancillary rights and the streaming rights is uh, that money comes in over time. Uh, DVD money comes in over time, still making TV deals. 
but it all goes into a central account that anybody can access. So if I'm an actor, I can yeah. get a login. Just call us up and go, yeah, here you go. Here's and traditionally, right, that's been very difficult to do. You end up usually having to sue someone to get, to get those Well, numbers. look, my experience has been each studio is different. Uh, you know, you end up auditing. Um, I think in most cases, this isn't mendacity. It's they're overwhelmed. There aren't a ton of people in these departments tracking this stuff. And they have hundreds of projects out there in various uh, phases of their cycles of revenue generation. And I, and I think of, you always find stuff when you audit, but it's, it's usually just— so You don't think it's ill will? Because some people will say, well, no, not part in of, my that's case. part of the business plan is to actually make this stuff difficult to track. It's, no, and it's also the one thing to keep in mind— uh, the whole conversation has to be sort of contextualized in it's for studios to market movies, the machine they have to keep oiled is so expensive. So if they make a movie, even if they make a movie that's a $5 million movie, they're spending $30 million to market it or 25 It depends on, on the film. But they're spending a ton of money because they have all this – they have the factories. They got to feed the factories and it's super expensive. Whereas if you do it – if you rent the distribution, if you rent – the marketing. It's a lot It's a lot cheaper for you. Are you guys interested in all that Jason Blum model where the tr- marketing is sort of traditional, but then the, the innovation is just in keeping things to a super tight budget and then letting you do what you want? Or, oh, or, yeah. Or, or is that sort of what you've always been doing? Your yeah, career? I mean, no. That's a great model. You know, I just, uh, I just want to do it without Jason. <laughs> like, yeah, I think he's set up something there that's, that's really smart yeah. and is working really well creatively and financially. That, you know, so... Um, in uh, the difference in our model is there's just, there's no studio. So you are sort of the poster child for the indie film movement of what, late 80s? When, when, did, you, when did you break? It, it was a Sex time. Lies was, yeah, I was in college. Yeah, 89. Yeah. I'm that old. Um, and that was, that was the era where, I don't know if this is your case, but you, the, the story would be, Filmmaker X goes and finances the thing on his credit card and eventually gets bought up. And there was a big boomlet of that stuff. Um, and that seems to have gone away for the most part. Well, it's just different. It's very, it's difficult now for an indie movie to to bust out the way they could back then. It's just harder. Um, <laughs> I remember during Sex Lies, at, at our peak, we were all like, unbelievably excited because the movie was making a million dollars a week. <laughs> and we just thought that was an outrageous sum of money, you know. It's actually not bad now, right? I, that, today, that's, that's just, well, that's would, a career ender. Yeah. You know, I'm just saying back in 1989, you know, we'd call each other on the phone like, dude, we're making a million dollars a week. Well, because they would pull that they wouldn't be in the theater after week two, right? After week one. Well, it's just that for for an independent film, a sort of platform release. That I don't know what our ultimate screen count was. You know, that just seemed like an incredible amount of money to us. Um, you know, like Scott said, it's 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 sort of an inverted pyramid now, and I think it's why. There's a psychological barrier, I think, to the idea of making a movie for $5 million and then spending $35 million to market it. Like, it's just, I think a lot of people think, well, isn't that kind of weird? Um, whereas actually, it's, it's potentially more lucrative. So, depending on when you hear this, um, we'll see. I, I think what's going to come out fairly soon. But uh, it seems like Disney's going to buy a chunk of Fox. If they don't buy a chunk of Fox, Comcast is going to buy it. 
um, there's going to be consolidation um, throughout the media landscape, but definitely in the big studios. What does that mean for you guys? I don't know. Um, as long as there's more than two, um, I'm happy. But the other thing you have to remember is we live in a world now where if if you want to go off completely on your own, you can do that. I mean, for people to say like, wow, they're really, they're really uh, you know, bottlenecking uh, distribution now. There's fewer companies. Yeah, but you know what? At the end of the day, I can go out and make a movie and create my own platform and charge people $4.99 to watch it, and I can do that. Also, you know? if you don't care about screens, if you don't care about seeing it in the theater, everybody is is creating content and financing content. Apple, YouTube, there's, you know, the guys who used to mail you your DVDs are now in production. You know, it's it's a whole... A whole new world. The studios, I'm not sure, you know, I feel it feels like a library move to me. You know, they're trying to do what Netflix is doing. They're trying to have all this content at their disposal. And so I don't know that that affects, they're still making, what is it, 400 shows or 500, some insane number of production. I think it's eight, 800 now, right? Total scripted. Wow. It's some crazy number. But, but, but it's whatever it is, it's a huge number compared to what it used to be. They're, they're looking for material. They're looking. The hard thing, if you, going back to the independent film world, you can, because of technology, it's very, you can make a movie on your phone, you can cut it on your laptop. It's, it's not hard to make a movie, but getting it seen is really difficult. And so lots of independent movies get made, but getting them seen at, with any kind of larger audience or distributed into theaters, that becomes the problem. Even getting them on pay-per-view, a lot of them go straight to pay-per-view, that's still not that, not that very, not many. Which is where festivals come in. Festivals become a, a, a kind of filter, uh, both in terms of the curation of the, the programming and then people responding to the film. Uh, and that's, that's, that's one way... No, Anybody can go out and make a movie, and anybody can submit it to a festival. So at a certain point, talent is still talent, you know. And the democratization of means, I think, hasn't shown that there are uh, a, a significant number of secret geniuses out there that, that we're never going to get a shot. Um, but it has, in a couple of cases, I think... Um, provided opportunities for people who were truly talented. To so it's not a million people making their own movie, but instead of 100 people making their own movie, maybe it's 200. Well, I'm just, a, this is a theory that I think probably can't be proven, but I think there's just a certain amount of great art that can exist in a, in a calendar year. And if you make 600 movies or you make 60, there's still only going to be five or six that are really great. It's not a linear equation you know, that is, tr that is tied to volume. So that's what I'm saying is like, if everybody's out there making movies, I still think there's only going to be a couple that are great that we would not have seen otherwise. But, you know, that's still a couple. And two other good things happen as a result of that. One, you begin to develop more artists, you know, the people who might not be good now, maybe they get a shot to kind of figure it out um, and become better. But also, you get more and more people in the habit of watching things and coming. Look at what's happened with television right now and people's attitude toward it or going back to podcasts. That's like old radio, you this know. Is, this is old radio right yeah, here. Yeah, that's really what it is. And the whole, that whole world is, is huge now. So the more that happens, yeah, there's a definite limited number of people who still really are truly talented or, and a definite limited number of, of really good pieces of material. But something about it 
shakes it all up in an interesting way. What I love about this technology is the liberation of it. The fact you don't need to wait for permission. It has become, in terms of filmmaking, um, you know, if you're a painter, you have an idea, you just go to the wall and you start. And I feel like you can just do that now. You can just go to the wall. Like you've got your phone and you've got an idea Start. You so can you, start. You would make, so if you were starting out and you wanted to do sex lies, you'd make it on your phone. Absolutely. Oh, I wish I'd had this stuff when I was fifteen. So you think you you are absolutely of a mind that the technology is is a sort of seems like a net plus for for what the you bottom do. line is. You get better by making things, and the more time you spend making things, the better you get. And so the ability to to be able to iterate this quickly and learn, um, I, I just think that's a gigantic get. I was trying to figure out a smooth segue for this. There's no smooth segue for this. How is life changing for you guys post Harvey Weinstein? Um, and it's, it's, it's every day there's a new story about terrible behavior throughout the world, but it's, a lot of them are happening in Hollywood in, in entertainment. What does it mean for you? Well, I mean, I don't know. It doesn't change my life at all. Um, you know, I think hopefully it's going to change the lives of a lot of other people. Um, I think it's one of those... It's one of those situations um, in which for a long time people have known that something needs to change and yet it doesn't until suddenly it does. And we've re we reached that point, like for whatever, whatever the convergence of events uh, needed to, to take place happened and now we're, we're in a new landscape and great. I mean, have you been on sets or in, in working conditions sort of since these stories started coming out where you can see there's a change in the way people are interacting with each other or is it not sort of filtered down yet? There's was a change in the conversation, certainly. Um, I haven't been on set since all this has been happening, but definitely there's a change in the conversation. I think another uh, result of all this, I think, will be just opening the doors more. You know, I think a lot of people who've been in charge are sort of um, being shown to be what they've always been in a way. And I think a lot of people have been held back in certain ways. And I think it's just going to kind of, I think it's going to stir things up in a way that'll be ultimately positive. Oh, no, it's huge. I think that shit's over. I think it's over. And, and to be clear, you're talking about both sexual harassment and predation and, and every other variation on that and general sort of tyranny. To, to, well, also, and also uh, access to other people, but, you know, more and more women filmmakers and African-American filmmakers and everybody. There's, again, these sort of ideas that only this person can do it or that person can do it. And again, talent ultimately wins the day, I think. But, but they're not even looking in this direction or that direction, but I think they are now. Yeah, but to your point, you know, there is a larger issue here beyond the specifics of these cases that have come out, which is about the abuse of power, the fact that as soon as you had two sets of human beings with caves, one of them looked over at the other and said, why is their cave bigger than ours? Like, this is a human problem, mm -hmm. like, of status and of ego. And it's always been around, and it's always going to be around, and the question is, how do we... How do we deal with it? But you see it everywhere you look. Um, I'm glad that this conversation has now sort of taken on critical mass. And we've now sort of been vaccinated. You can't not think about it now. And I think that's fantastic. So you guys have status and power and you're gatekeepers, right? You are the kind of people that can abuse other people traditionally in, in Hollywood and entertainment. Um, you seem like nice fellows. I've talked to Scott now twice. I like Stephen's movies, but I don't know what you're really like. Um, 
do you are you spending time sort of rethinking how you've interacted with people and thought I, I think I'm a good person, but I should have done this differently, or maybe I'll do this differently going forward. I look. I've tried to operate under a, a, a belief system that I was raised with by my parents, by my father, who was a teacher and who taught other teachers, uh, by people who mentored me early on, who luckily for me had a very sort of egalitarian attitude about uh, power structures and believed in a, a chain of command, but not a chain of respect. And so I, I, I that's the way I've always tried to treat people. Um, and, and I've never believed that you get um, the best out of somebody by creating tension or by diminishing them or abusing them. I've never seen it. Uh, I never grew up around it, so I never saw it, quote, work. Um, the, the idea, it, you know, Guillermo del Toro is a perfect example. This is one of the nicest people that I've ever met in the film business and certainly one of the most talented people working right now. So it's clear you can make great work and be nice. Don't need to be an asshole to make great work. No, and in fact, in the long run, it's a detriment because people shut down. You can't do this stuff alone. When you're trying to solve a problem, you need help. People shut down. I've been, well, I worked on crews before Sex Lies where there were directors who were prima donnas or, you know, egotistical to the point of people deciding, I'm just going to let you flail. I'm not going to help because you're being kind of an asshole. And so there's the short-term effect, which is people don't want to help you. There's a long-term effect, which is unless you have the, you know, Haley's Comet gift of creating one massive hit after another, and you're just leaping from mountaintop to mountaintop, at a certain point, people are just going to go, I don't want to work with that person anymore. It's just, it's unpleasant. Nobody, everybody comes away bruised, and, uh, and the movie bombed. Like, so... <laughs> You know, Casey Silver, our producer on Godless, who I've known for 30 years, I got, I got in the room on Out of Sight. I had to wait for a lot of other people to pass. Um, I'd made two movies for Casey that, that didn't make a nickel, King of the Hill and The Underneath. He put me in that room because he liked me and knew, like, well, at least if Steven's on that movie, I'm not going to get calls about problems. He'll call me when he's ready to show it. And so that's a direct result of, of being known as someone rational and respectful. It does seem like sort of the, the, the landscape we're talking about and how technology is changing and the industry is changing sort of helps in this regard, right? Because there's less concentrated power. I mean, we were just talking about how, how the studios are going to concentrate, but there's more opportunities for people to do more work. You don't have to work with a Harvey Weinstein if you don't want to, or it's easier to do work without having to go through them, where... 30 years ago, that was the pipeline. Well, like I said, it's this thing, you meet somebody who behaves a certain way, let's say uh, in an unpleasant sort of abusive way. You talk to them and they go, I've, I've achieved what I've achieved because I am that way. And I look at you and I go, no, you're half of what you could be because you behave that way. That's my attitude. And having worked for a lot of great directors, 
I don't, I, the whole director is tyrant thing. I've never, I've never seen it and I'm not good around it. I'm not good being around people who are, who are that way or treat other people that way. I've never done good work. I can't imagine how people do good work when they're afraid all the time. And when I started directing, I could feel myself losing hold of my better self whenever I started to become afraid. And then I realized, no, what I need to do is I actually need to get help. And um, that's what I need to do. I need to, and a lot of people, I think the worst advice I ever got when I started directing was from someone who said to me, if you're standing on the set and you don't know what to do, don't let anyone know that you don't know what to do. Fake it. Just, you know, don't, if you're stuck and you have a problem, don't let anyone know that you're having a problem. It's the worst advice ever. Because once people know that you want help and you're the kind of person that's not afraid to ask for help, I think you get it, the collaboration becomes much better. Yeah, and I think, look, you articulate that. We've all been on a set and watched something rehearse or whatever, and you feel like it's just not working. And when somebody says, so what's the plan? You go, I don't know. I mean, it's a conversation. You go, I don't know, because right. if we do it this way, it doesn't work. If we do it that way, it doesn't work. Like you explained, the reason I'm stuck here is because all of the options to me seem unexceptional. Because the flip side, if you go to the person in charge and say, what do you want to do? And they go, I don't know. You go, um, I don't know. Well, that's not that's, good that's either. That's not confidence. No, that's not good either. But it's not that you don't know what you want. It's that you're not, it's not working. It's just not working. And it's you not have a conversation about why isn't this working? And this is, this is what it's supposed to be. And this is what's, this is what it is right now. It's, uh, I think you not walking onto a set and not knowing what you want is, is kind of death, I think. <laughs> This is kind of a nice, positive way to end an interview. It's <laughs> good. Um, we talked about Unseen is, is in March. Unsane. Unsane, sorry. Um, Godless, you can watch whenever. What's, what's up? Right what's, now, what's next for you? streaming on your TV box. I don't know. Yeah. I'm, what would you like to do? Well, we're going to go to lunch and talk about yes. this, actually. <laughs> I am blissfully unemployed right now. Um, when you're at lunch or at dinner or whenever, you can also buy liquor from, from Steven? You can if you're... Uh, predisposed to do that kind of thing. It's called? Singani 63. Does not have your name on it? Not anymore. Does not have your face on it? No. Th it never did, thank God. And it's a brandy-ish? Technically, it's a brandy. It's a clear spirit, mixable, drinkable. And this um, is not a vanity project for you? Like, your name's not on it? Oh, it's man. a real business? No, it's 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 not a hobby. We'll so discuss that in the liquor thing. podcast we're doing next. Oh, well, we gotta, what we got to do is go get some and then do a podcast. <laughs> it's There's very There's a really tasty. good liquor store right next door. We'll, I'll go check it out. Okay. Later. Deal. Uh, Stephen, thanks for coming. Scott, thanks for coming again. Thanks for having us. So, Scott and Stephen have just left, and i got to admit, I'm a, I'm a little bit excited that I got to talk to them again because they're my heroes. Um... Here's something I'm also excited about, the Code Media Conference in February. We're going to talk to people like Scott and Steven who make awesome stuff, um, talk about the business of making that stuff, talk about how you distribute that stuff. It's all going to happen in Southern California, February 12th and 13th. Kara Swisher will be there as well. Um, you should come join us. Go to recode.net to learn more. Thanks to our sponsors, Airtable, Simple Human, and Mac Weldon, the OG Recode Media sponsor. Thanks to Cadence 13 and Vox Media who bring those sponsors to you. They sell those ads so you can listen to Recode Media for free. Thanks to Joel Robbie who edits this show. Thanks to my producers, Eric Johnson and Golda Arthur. Thanks to you guys for listening and for telling people about the show. This is Recode Media. I will see you next week. Recode.